Hello and welcome to the Phil Hay Show, a weekly collaboration podcast between The Athletic and The Square Ball. I'm Dan Moylan and I'm joined by The Athletic's Phil Hay. Hello everybody. And from The Square Ball, Michael Normanson. Hello. And Moscow White, Daniel Chapman. Hello. We are one of 20 podcasts that The Athletic have out at the moment. UK football podcasts, all free wherever you found this podcast. Phil popped up on the uh, the daily transfer roundup with Leeds United News as well, so you're cheating on us already, Phil. Yeah, it was just 10 minutes of silence, though. Is that all you've got to bring to the transfer? Yeah, the transfer <laughs> maybe, maybe a little bit more today, but yeah, we, we managed to find 10 minutes to talk about, which was quite a challenge, seeing as how literally nobody had signed. You can also listen to the podcasts via The Athletic app itself, which is where you'll find all Phil's brilliant writing. And you can get yourself to theathletic.com now forward slash leads pod, and you can subscribe with a 40% discount. Well, it's amazing, isn't it, how the mood of the Leeds fans can be charted, how it ebbs and flows. Over the last 24 hours, we've seen the despair giving way a little bit more to optimism as things have started to move a little bit in the transfer market. And we had, uh, obviously, the dropped points last night for Fulham and Forest. Obviously, it helps seeing an empty Old Trafford. Um, and then the leak of the Adidas kit announcement. Suddenly, Leeds is starting to feel like a happier place again. Slightly, although I, I still think everything hinges on them signing a striker and it, it won't take long before that comes back to the fore and it'll intensify depending on the result um, against Millwall next Tuesday and it's probably not a bad thing that there is a, a free weekend this weekend useful for the, the recruitment department to crack on with that without the distraction of a game and, and probably useful for everybody else to draw breath after the, the QPR game. They are making some progress. They they got the Italian goalkeeper Elia Capriol over the line. I mean, he's been training for the best part of a week with the club but they needed some paperwork done. There'll be some compensation due to Kievo, which will, will go through FIFA and, and be sorted out. So they needed some international paperwork before they could find that they've got Ian Paveda in for a medical this morning it's Thursday morning at the moment um, he should sign later today from Manchester City um, on a permanent deal so that would be number two through the door and obviously the, there was the news about the, the latest Shea Adams bid which hasn't been accepted by Southampton and they don't seem like they're going to, to buckle on that and, and I think the figures caught a lot of people's eye the, the fact that there was a loan fee involved that the obligation in the summer if Leeds go up was going to be something in the region of, of £20 million which does kind of make you realise that the kind of figures that have been talked about for the sort of players that, that they're looking at and, and you're right as well about the championship results it, it is helping in the table that West Brom are having a stutter that none of the clubs behind Leeds are coming on as, as strongly as they could have done had Millwall taken three points at Charlton or had Forrest held on and, and beaten Reading so still a little bit of breathing space there it's still enough breathing space for everybody to kind of keep it together but it is it is all fairly on a knife edge at the moment We'll dive into the transfers a, a wee bit later on. Want to return to the QPR game because you told us your one to watch. Well, you picked multiple ones to watch in the yeah. last podcast, which was London. Can we win there? No, oh. is the answer to that question. Jack Clark, did he have an impact? No. The other thing that you told us to look out for was the reaction in the away end. And I guess we can extend that out to the fan base in general. Was the reaction to the QPR result warranted? I think it probably was, yeah. Uh, actually, I mean, the, the away end, to be fair to them, were far more focused on the referee, Peter Banks, who, d- who did not have a good afternoon and was struggling well before the goal from Naki Wells, which was a clear handball and, and should have been disallowed. And, and I did feel that a lot of the frustration over the 90 minutes was being channeled in his direction and, and direction of the of his assistant as well, who, who didn't seem to be seeing much from the, the right-hand touchline. But... I mean, I think the club feel that the reaction to the Wednesday game and, and also the QPR game has been over the top given the league position and and the fact that they, they are still, certainly in terms of the table, they're very much in control of, of second place or, or a top two finish. But there are issues and definite issues. I mean, you can see the 
the absence of confidence in Patrick Bamford, which was was there and, and very apparent with the penalty. I thought a big concern as well on Saturday was the bench, which was so weak um, and so lacking in options that it was impossible to see how Bielsa was going to change the game if he needed to, and, and ultimately he did. And he said himself afterwards, it, it would have been very useful to have Nketi on the bench because that would have given me some way of changing what was going on up front and, and to switch it about. And he's speaking an awful lot about Nketi at the moment and probably more than, than he should be for a player who, quite honestly, at times he, he didn't look like he, he wanted to use. And I really do admire the way that he pushes 23s on and, and the way that he commits to them and, and the amount that he wants to use the academy. But I do feel when you look at that bench at, at Loftus Road that you're risking a lot on very, very unproven players and it brings you back to the the reality that not every 23 is going to be up to it. not every 23 is going to be good enough and, and when you hear the clamour as an example for Ryan Edmondson and you see Bielsa's reluctance to play him you, you're on to the conclusion that he falls into the list of players who, who aren't up to it and yet it would be better surely if the bench had some options for the centre of midfield some options up front some options you know for, for somebody like Calvin Phillips who's missing for three games now because of that red card and, and I do feel that once again they're running on a squad which isn't quite deep enough do you think the club are sensitive to the criticism that's coming their way at the minute? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the club have never particularly dealt well with criticism in all the time that I've I've covered them. And, and I think it's the conflict between the fact that they think they're, good, they're doing a good job and they, and they know that they're in a good position in the league and the fact that they've got a fan base who've you know, put up with pretty abject misery for such a long time and feel that creep again of, of underperformance and creep of poor results and, and the fear that they are going to get caught and they are going to get dragged back into the playoffs. And anybody who shares my view about the bench, that they, they have a squad there that actually might not hold up too well in the second half of the season if without the depth that, that they need. I mean, in terms of Phillips as an example, it sounds like the option, the, the, the clearest option to, to cover that in Bielsa's head will be Ben White. But it wasn't an experiment that worked particularly well at Huddersfield, I didn't think. And in a lot of ways, in that game, White played as a third centre-back rather than an out-and-out defensive midfielder. There didn't seem to be a, a clear decision on, on what his position was. And they're still waiting on Forshaw to come back. But you know this this injury he's got just will not clear to the point where he, he's able to come back into the team. And you would imagine that after so long out, Bielsa will want to push him through some 23s games and, and plenty of training and these, these motherball sessions that they do midweek. So, yeah, they are sensitive to it. And I think they would prefer that there wasn't so much. I think they, they do feel that, that some of it is excessive. But I always say this with Leeds. This is how it's going to go. This is how it always goes. And people want to see the club promoted. They think that the club should be... I think a lot of people feel that the club should be in a stronger position in terms of the, the playing options that they have at the moment, particularly up front where it is pretty much Bamford or Bust. And I have to say, I, you know, I agree with a lot of the criticism at the moment. Do we put that on Bielsa? To some extent, it is in a lot of ways his choice to run with a squad so thin and it was the same last season and of all the things that he demanded in the summer a bigger squad wasn't one of them he, he wanted the loans to work better he also wanted wanted fewer injuries but at no point did he say to them I didn't have enough players last season you know he, there, were, there were players who were in the squad who weren't particularly used like Mizzy Brown and Lewis Baker before Christmas and he's happy with these numbers because he, he just cannot tolerate first team players particularly senior ones around the training ground who who have very little chance of getting in the team when it's at, at full strength but what it does mean is that if your mind is four shot and Phillips gets suspended there is literally nobody proven and in that precise role to drop into it and a lot of talk about Alfie McCalmont the young under 23s kid who, who plays in that precise position and could come in but 
it's a big ask for three games. A big ask at this point where the form's dropped a bit. And there's a lot of talent there and people think a lot of him. But is he good enough at the moment? And, and can you keep relying on the academy players every time a hole needs to be filled? I'm, I'm not entirely sure you can. So there is some on Bielsa, but at the same time, I try never to forget he's elevated the squad from a side who were absolutely nowhere near the playoffs, let alone the top two, to a side who should have been promoted last season and, and sh- you know, should go up again this year. How do we solve the absence of Calvin Phillips then? Not with Ben White, ideally. I didn't like him there at Huddersfield and I don't like the idea of disrupting the back four, but I fear that is what Bielsa will do. For all for all he has the faith in the under-23s, he does seem to prefer them on the bench, which worries me, that he's going he's gonna to try and reshuffle things with with the players he's got, which is going to mean Berardi probably coming at centre-back. It's going to mean Ben White going into midfield and then it'll, if anything, probably amplify the problems we already have, seem to have developed at the back. I'd rather we kept the back line settled or as settled as injuries allow at the moment. It could go with a three-three-one-three. We've we've kind of changed things around at at Leeds, where we we rely on Calvin Phillips every game we play. But Bielsa doesn't necessarily have to have a Calvin Phillips on the pitch if he was that friend. It's kind of what happened with Ben White at Huddersfield. He started there and then he dropped back, and then we didn't really have a a player in front of the the defence. And you can you switch it around. Bielsa's other option is you have a a player you put Samu Saiz behind uh, Pat Bamford at the top and you could do that with Pablo Hernandez although he's, he, he doesn't seem to have the thrills in the, the central position that he did once he seems to be better suited to coming off wide so there are there are ways around it I would quite fancy although it's not a it's not a sensible policy I quite fancy the idea of Alfie McCalmont doing it just to give some life to things just as a change I think the worst thing that could maybe happen is if Stuart Dallas is uh, shoehorned into becoming the you new can, Calvin you, Phillips. You can't and, avoid feeling that that might be on his mind, really. Yeah, and it would it would be quite likely, but it would also just be, it's a bit same old, same old. Whereas I think for the atmosphere, the, the flip side of the, the reliance on under-23s is, if you remember last season when we couldn't get enough of Jack Clark off the bench and it was the most exciting thing that had, that had come. And I'd, I feel a bit sorry for Jordan Stevens, who's come on in the last few games and particularly uh, Arsenal and looked good, like not a, a game changer, but has looked lively and not out of place. Maybe it's different if he's starting, but but it's all been kind of a bit lost under this thing of that he's not good enough. Whereas if the last 20 minutes in a match, he, he probably is. So maybe to just get some of the excitement back of seeing Alfie McCalmont on the on the team sheet. What's that going to be like instead of Stuart Dallas? Oh, here we go again. But I don't know whether that would be enough to lift things. And then if he gets overrun by Millwall after five minutes and we're having to hook him off after 20, then it's, it's not a good look. It's what you lose as well by putting Dallas, well, all over the pitch. Because I think our best football this year was played when Dallas was wide right. Yeah. And then as he's had to move elsewhere, things have not, not ailing to win and done well, but I don't think we've had quite the same fluency as we had earlier in the season and Dallas was a massive part of that. So if we start in moving him again from going, well, you you are a right back, now you're a central midfielder, now you're a defensive midfielder, I feel like he's we lose we lose Dallas in that. As much as he'll do a good job wherever you play him, I'd rather he was playing in his best position. Which does lend itself a bit to the, the 3-3-1-3 that Moscow was talking about and that was pretty much how it, how it settled down at, at Huddersfield and you've you've got the option of playing Cleek as your middle man in the in the central three but what you know with Cleek is that he, he won't sit in the way that, that Phillips does and, and it was a problem before half-time at Huddersfield the, the amount of space between the line of centre-backs and the, the midfield three 
and Huddersfield ran out of steam eventually and, and weren't able to, to keep it up but for as long as their intensity levels were high it was hard for Leeds and there were a lot of gaps and they were under pressure I mean that sort of system as well it does allow you to play Dallas on the right and, and somebody on the left it isn't working on the left with anybody particularly um, and even Dallas um, against QPR had a, a difficult first half and, and was off off after after 45 minutes but yeah I mean to, to take Stevens, um, I mean because of his betting ban earlier in the season, it sounded at that point, or I was told at that point, that it was highly unlikely he'd play any first-team football because he missed six weeks, obviously didn't train at all with, with anybody at Thorpe Arch, and that sets you back in, in Bielsa's mind. You, you need to be heavily involved. But then Jack Clark is gone, and they need a winger of sorts in the squad, so Stevens takes his place. But you find yourself almost easing Stevens in and blooding him at a, a really critical point in the season where there's a lot of pressure on transfers where the results aren't great and, and what doesn't feel like the most fertile environment to be throwing in a kid like Stevens or, or like McCalmont you'd, you'd like to be doing this at a point where the pressure isn't isn't quite the same and some kids you know like Shackleton for example when he came on in the first leg of the playoffs last season and was excellent away at Derby some of them cope with it extremely well and, and ride it no problem but not all of them are going to and mm. This is the stage where you can't really afford to drop points and lose results on the basis of gambles that don't work. I suppose that's where Paveda is kind of coming in. He Stevens yeah. won't be on the bench after Paveda comes in, I imagine. No, Paveda is seen as a first-team player, first-team signing. He hasn't been that involved at City because, I think if truth be told, his attitude recently over there has not been brilliant. Um, he was dropped down to the 23s. He hasn't agreed a new contract. Um, I don't think was particularly happy about that decision at City, so it was late for training a couple of times and it's pretty much been on his way out. I think he knows he needs a fresh start and needs to, to go elsewhere. And, and I don't know whether that is indicative of him generally or just indicative of the way things have gone at, at City. But certainly from speaking to people who've known him since he was very young, everybody speaks extremely highly of his talent and, and thinks he is a, a, a very, very gifted footballer. Will he need the Bielsa treatment of 23's games, weeks of training? Um, I was going to say, I'll no doubt be thrilled to go from Man City's under-23s to our <laughs> yeah. under-23s yeah. until the, halfway through next season when Bielsa judges him to be up to speed. <laughs> I mean, I, I, it just doesn't seem to be the Bielsa way to bomb somebody in overnight and, and immediately and I guess it will depend a little bit on his fitness um, and I'm sure he's looked over, looked after himself to some extent at City but I'd be amazed if he's if he's at the sort of weight levels and mm. fitness levels that Bielsa asks we for. can skim off another three or four stone off that frame absolutely I'm sure. yeah, yeah, yeah even not? though he's incredibly slight already starve yeah. that boy we probably need a weekend off don't we after last weekend just give everybody everybody a chance to calm down and we look ahead to Millwall I mean do you agree weekend off is, is perhaps for the best here just to give us a bit of breathing space Tell you on Tuesday night. It can't be a bad thing to focus on the tra- to have a bit more time to focus on the the transfers and to get a bit further down the line with various strikers without having you know the game going on in the background. It can't and, be a bad thing. And the championship results since have helped. We you know you said at the start things have calmed down a little bit. That might contribute to Leeds's kind of corporate bemusement when they can't believe everybody's losing their heads and the Charlton who did they draw Charlton Fulham and then Forest drawing as well with Reading those fixtures might have been the other way around but what I know is um, they drew and that's the important they drew and they didn't make the they didn't make the the gains on us that they they might have done and it's probably a, a fair point you can actually you can get away with losing some of these gambles during the championship season because the championship is mad so, yeah. you know, West Brom go and lose and then those two results go away. So what have we actually come out of the, the QPR game without? We haven't gained the three points that would have been nice and the, the other three points from Sheffield Wednesday, but the the bizarre 
hideousness, I won't call it beauty of the championship, is that it cannot matter. We could look yeah. back on this. At the moment, the last few weeks, it has felt like without a signing, without a, uh, without a win, everything is falling apart, to use the song, the sky is falling in. It could be that we look back in May and it's just forgotten. Never, if, it didn't have any impact whatsoever. The championship feels oddly unhappy at the moment. I, despite the top six being the top six, I don't think anyone in there is actually pleased because West Brom are falling <laughs> apart just as much as us. They had Diangana went off injured within the first few minutes for them. So they'll be they'll be no doubt panicking. And they looked they looked a bit like us really against Stoke. They looked pretty bereft of ideas. I was watching that game thinking I can almost picture West Brom in Leeds kits here because that's that's how we're going to be against them. Loads of the ball, just putting it in the box constantly and them just heading it clear. And likewise, Fulham, Forest and Brentford will have all looked at fixtures coming up and thinking this is a good chance to, to gain points on them. And they're all messing it up as well. It's 46 Phil, games. Everybody's knackered. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and this is this is always the point where it, it sags a bit and everybody starts to, to feel it. I think Fulham will probably be relatively happy on the basis of how far behind Leeds they could have been had, had Leeds won at Craven Cottage in, in December. And Brentford, Brentford would be pretty content as well. They're, they're ticking over nicely. But Michael's right. It, it's not going that well for anybody and I mean Reading's equaliser was a big bonus because that was a proper lettuce hands moment for, for Forest Keeper and just little moments like that particularly when you're you're struggling you're not informed do help and psychologically will will be a bonus for, for the players at Leeds because it I think if you've got Fulham and Brentford a point behind on really really on your case then the pressure comes to bear and it, and it is it is always most extreme at Leeds, worse than, than any other club in this division, I feel. So, yeah, the, I think after QPR and everything that's been going on, even just those little results were the sort of thing that the club needed. I think so too, yeah. It, we're sort of heading into Millwall, I think, in a relatively strong position. Actually, would you want a different game to this? Because they're coming off the back of an FA Cup tie at the weekend, which is going to be quite demanding. They're not going to get a lot of rest time. They're going to be then travelling up to Leeds for a game on the Tuesday. and. It's a home game for us. We've had 10 days of rest. Surely we're going into this one confident. Yeah, it should be favourable circumstances, but I don't think Leeds are playing well enough and in good enough form at the moment to make assumptions like that. And they have been good under Gary Rowe at Millwall. They've been competitive. They definitely seem to be in the mix for the, the top six, which I think is a surprise given their squad, although they've they've signed Ryan Woods on loan, which I think is is excellent signing for them and actually somebody who you could see fitting perfectly for Leeds over the next three games, um, given that there's no no Calvin Phillips with, with this suspension. So it, it's going to be tense and it's going to be edgy, isn't it? And that's probably the kind of game that, that Millwall would like to have at Ellen Road. But yeah, I mean, the, all things being equal, it is... a very, very winnable fixture, hard fixture, difficult fixture. And given the form, what is it, one win in seven, they've got to start turning it on at some point soon. You can't imagine, and we've said on our podcast through the week, you can't imagine this turns into a terminal decline. At some point it has to turn around. So why not this game? 10 of our remaining 18 games are at home. It's perfectly doable. It is. Brentford away is looking particularly pivotal um, in a few weeks' time. That's going to be a big Tuesday night in London. And they do, yeah, they... They do have a lot of home games, which is fine if they're in form and there's a lot of confidence around the place. It's not necessarily so good if Ellen Road becomes twitchy in the way that, that it can do. But it's a, it, it's all there in front of them. And, you know, to go back to what we've said previously, they cannot ask for two better chances than last season under Bielsa. And this season under Bielsa, they've been give or take on 50 points by Christmas on, on both occasions. And if you're not finishing that off, you really are letting it slip through your fingers. And I think the club feel that as well. The club know what's coming in the summer, the changes that are going to have to be made if if they don't go up. They know that if they don't do enough in this window and they get caught out, 
it'll be an opportunity missed that probably isn't coming back again or, or may not be coming back again anytime soon. So yeah, I mean, these are these are really, really crucial moments. And I think because of the way the form is at the moment, over, over the next two, three, four weeks, that you've, you've got to see a concerted upturn. Joe, it often feels like the universe conspires against Leeds United or it's caving in around us or probably both sometimes. So we want to run through some of the, the, the friction points, the things that cause us grief and figure out what is wrong with Leeds United. What is wrong with Leeds United, Phil? You can, oh, you can tell yeah. us as, as an external third party. In a nutshell. It comes back to goals, doesn't it? It comes back to the fact that they spend games in so many positions where they set themselves up to kill teams and they and they don't kill them. And it was the same at, at QPR. It, it was like queuing up in the second half. Not bundles and bundles of chances, but easily enough chances to get something from the game, particularly the penalty. And there was the lob from Bamford in, in the first half, which again, I, I know there was a lot of arg- argument about expected goals ratios and everything on Twitter afterwards. But I think with the naked eye, you look at that and think a decent striker in good form is going to stick that away, really. Especially because... Because Liam Kelly had committed himself so far off the line, so there is that, and I mean that it's just going over old ground. And I don't know why, but it doesn't feel as if Bielsa is ever going to get on top of that. You know, that they're ever going to get on top of the fact that the, the number of goals they score is so far below the expected goals ratio that they, they should be hitting. And perhaps a new striker will change that. Although I'm still to be convinced that a new striker will play regularly ahead of Bamford. And there are other issues. I mean, we we're, were talking about the corners at the weekend and. It feels like a blind spot for a coach who is so big on attractive play and creative play and, and so big on process and building attacks and everything else that they've gone down this avenue of ball after ball into the six-yard box into the penalty area, which the opposition invariably head out first time. So tactically and, and in terms of performance, there are things that could improve, but it, it's nothing new, particularly, I don't think. And it, it seems like the same old problems. Why can't we take corners? Because this, this does bug me, does this? Because I think back and it feels to me like... This has been a problem for years with Leeds. And I go back to the days when, even when Gordon Strachan was whipping him in, it's funny that Gordon Strachan did so much for our football club. And yet my abiding memory of him is hitting the near post, the first man, every single Little time. Little chipped corners, that yeah. is clear. Yeah, it was, the, it was the Leicester goal, obviously, in 1990. And then I fast forward to loads and loads of corners hit away from the near post. And it just feels like history repeats over Gary McAllister again. perfected it as well. Once Strachan... Dropped out of the team. McAllister took over in the little chipped corners of the near post. It was a brilliant cartoon in the square ball in the mid-90s. Of, it was Gordon Strachan's guide to corner signals and it showed all these different signals <laughs> and they all meant floated corner to the to the front post cleared by the defender. But we, we whip them in these days, don't we? That's, that seems to be the preferred tactic. And it so is. What, what's the thinking there then? I'm a big fan of Phillips. Um, Bielsa has decided that he's the best striker of, of a dead ball despite... Hernandez being in the squad even when Barry Douglas is there and, and corners and set pieces were always Douglas's trick down at Wills but it is Phillips and it, invariably it is sent straight into the but there's very little in the way of interplay I know we saw the, the goal from Cleek against Middlesbrough but that is that's a rarity and there's a point in the second half where I think Harrison went to try and invite the corner to be taken short and QPR were, were kind of alive to it but half switched off as well and Phillips turned it down, ball into the box, head, headed out. The problem with Phillips, I feel, is that in every game, you get three or four which are not hit cleanly and are easily cleared at the front post or don't amount to even so much as a, a proper clearing header in amongst a, a group of players. And it just seems astonishing that, I mean, it is 211 corners they've had now, three goals scored. The percentage is so low that it reminds me a lot of the penalty situation, which is that... Again, for a coach who controls so much and has oversight of so much, it seems like a contradiction that with penalties, he pretty much says, 
just do what you like and see how you feel. So you have a situation on Saturday where I'm not particularly confident Bamford is taking that, but you've got Click on the pitch, you've got Hernandez on the pitch. I mean, Hernandez's record isn't great either, and I know Click has, has missed as well, but Click has been a penalty taker for a long time for Poland and is pretty good when he you know when, when he, he puts his mind to it. But there doesn't seem to be a first choice. It, it doesn't seem to be a designated taker. It is kind of a free-for-all. And it's the same with corners. At, at no point... You think that at some point somebody's going to say, this isn't really working. Why don't we do something different, um, considering the sheer number that they have? We had the brief spell around the click goal. That came in a, a run of a few games when we did start taking corners short and we were talking about it at the time. It seemed like the Bielsa had almost let the players off the leash. You're like, thinking about the Middlesbrough one? Yeah. Um, and if you, you know, if you guys think you can get some goals from short corners, crack on. There was a real start and it was a Bielsa had spoken about it in a, a press conference at the, around the same time where he said he felt that the best way of scoring from a corner is to whip the ball in really fast and have people running at it yeah and and hope it goes in and hope somebody connects and there was this this period of a few games I think the click one against Middlesbrough was the fourth of the four goals if I remember correctly it put the cherry on the cake yeah, that's didn't right. it yeah. so the I'm wondering if when pressure comes on one of the things I think Bielsa tries to give a team is Whatever it is in his makeup where he thinks he can't teach finishing and he can't control penalties because so much of that is down to an individual player's nerve. If you think, you know, that you'll have the best striker of a football, you can analyse how well they kick a ball, but if they're not feeling right. So he feels like he can't really intervene there. And the same with corners where he thinks best chance putting it in the in the box. So he gives the players this kind of structure where if they do that, they know they've got to whatever percentage chance of it of it being a goal and then when times are hard that's kind of what you need where you think oh well we'll, we'll do what the boss says because it's it's this percentage chance that we'll score a goal when times are good when you're 3-0 up against Middlesbrough you can go ah oh, you know what take it short I'll have a, I'll have a yeah. shot from outside yeah. see what happens so I, th- I think it maybe comes with with confidence and um, the whole uh, team kind of works that way sometimes it's used against them the fact that they just keep trying this Ball into the box, Bamford doesn't get there. Ball into the box, Bamford doesn't get there over and over again. And you do wish sometimes for that little bit of invention, but then at the same time, every manager talks about when things are going against you, just work hard. And that's the way they've been trained to work. So they just go, right, we just keep working at what what we've been told to do and eventually it'll come off. So we were saying this the other day, if Bamford scores, we win games. Everybody relaxes. Calvin can start switching his corners up. Ben White's not under pressure at the back thinking one mistake and Kiko's going to flap it in. And, <laughs> and if, if Bamford scored that penalty against QPR, Calvin Phillips doesn't go for that tackle at the end Then he's not sent off for three games. And it, it all does just seems to come back to put the ball in the net and, and lots of things will be a lot better. Going back to the corners, I do wonder if part of the issue is we've seen how bad we are at defending them in games if in training we score loads because we can't defend them so they're going to games <laughs> thinking we're actually quite good at corners we seem to score all the time but then it's a double problem so yeah you, you might be, be onto something there I mean I, I kind of hold my breath every time Leeds defend a corner they just again there are a, a small kind of finite number of things that Bielsa it'd be wrong to say that he doesn't care about but sometimes you do kind of get that impression that they're like, not very pretty I think yeah, uh, I think he's, and, he's very much about the aesthetic yeah. of football isn't he so if you watch the way they defend corners the number of times they leave 
leave three men in the six-yard box or in a position where if the, if the ball's dropping to them, they're going to score. It's amazing, really. And, and it's never, he certainly never tried to nail it down in the way that Gary Monk did when, and Clotet when they were having all that problem back in um, 2006. I'd, I'd have to revisit the quotes, but he did say earlier this season, he, he got on to talk about crosses and corners and about the fact that he, he was concerned that players were almost taking the easy option with them you know you get down the wing and you just bang the ball in rather than doing what City do and what Liverpool do which is to get your head up have a think look at what's around you and if you need to play backwards and if you need to work it a bit more and actually if you need to try and get into the box with ball on the deck then you do it rather than just swinging it in but the players haven't really been able to get themselves into the mindset where they're particularly good at that there's an awful lot coming in from the flanks that isn't isn't amounting to, to anything. We seem to be sort of circling around the same issue, which is about handling pressure. Do we think, I mean, do you think, Phil, that Leeds as a club is more affected by pressure than a lot of others? Yeah, and I think the pressure is more severe than a lot of other clubs. I mean, I'm always loath to say that a club like Brentford would be philosophical if they were in this position in January and didn't get promoted or didn't make the playoffs. I think they'd be very disappointed and they they have got a very, very good established strategy for year on year you know how how to build how to recruit how to make money how to get themselves into this stadium but if they don't get promoted I don't think there's going to be the gnashing of teeth round about Griffin Park that you're going to see at Elland Road if, if Leeds don't go up and that's probably true of just about every club in the Championship I don't think I don't think in many seasons going back over the past 15 years there are clubs where the demand and the, the kind of obsession with finally, finally getting out of the EFL is as intense and unfortunately you're never going to get away from that here and it's only going to get stronger as the years tick by. And one of the issues we seem to contend with constantly is our paranoia, our own paranoia. One thing that is definitely wrong well, with Leeds as a club. And well, we got a question from Ben around this. Yeah. We've often thought the other teams play better when they're playing against us than they do other teams they seem to try harder because they want to beat us it seems to be a bit of a thing where more decisions go against us than go for us and it's coming to a point where is the world against us now might sound paranoid here but do we get unlucky in that we get things going against us more often than not is that actually a thing or are we just too close to it to see so do the fates turn against us more often than not, Phil? Are we worse than other clubs or do we imagine it? Well, the first point there, do teams try harder against Leeds? You'd have to ask them, but I've spoken to plenty of Leeds players over the years who think there is an element of truth about that. And there are certain games when you can see it. I mean, I still think QPR away last season in amongst their staggering run of defeats and Leeds' long run of wins was a was a very good example. But, you know, that, that's, that's just one of those things. We should talk about referees. I've written about referees this morning. Uh, and the thing was, the piece for The Athletic was supposed to be about VAR because you'll have seen that QPR tweeted after the game, no VAR, no problem. Hilarious. Turn, it was, wasn't it? Yeah, turning to wink and smile to the camera and... Sure enough, that was a goal that should have been disallowed. Um, VAR would definitely have disallowed it. But the reality is that the, the referee should have disallowed it because it was right in front of him. There's no reason not to see it. And the more I started speaking to people, the more I kind of got the, the feeling that there is no particular groundswell in the EFL of opinion that says they want VAR. I think a lot of the clubs at this level are totally unconvinced by the system in the Premier League. They can see the potential advantages of it, but they don't think it's working well at the moment. It would be expensive to implement and if it was going to be implemented it would already, for next season, it would already be on the EFL's agenda, which it isn't. So you're probably looking at 18 months minimum. And they would have to expand Stockley Park. They, they, at the moment, they can do a maximum of 10 games at the same time. It would obviously need to, to ramp up significantly if, if they're doing the championship. But 
when you, you get talking to people, it's less about VAR than it is about the standard of refereeing. You might have noticed that Birmingham tweeted saying that they've got um, a meeting coming up with um, PGMOL, the, the referee's body, after what happened at the weekend of their game at game against Middlesbrough when the goal was disallowed right at the very end in, in pretty controversial circumstances. And Leeds have had, obviously, the Millwall penalty, the Berardi red card overturned. And, and what was interesting about that was that in the verdict that came back from the regulatory commission, it said that it shouldn't have been a penalty because there was no foul committed. And it basically accused Tom Bradshaw of diving, despite the fact that the, the FA didn't, didn't cite him for it. So that was demonstrably wrong on the basis that the appeal was won. The referee's assessors wrote back to Leeds after the Fulham game to say, yes, you're right, the penalty given for um, Ben White's push on a doy should not have not been given at the start of the game. And I don't know if they've had a response to the Naki Wells decision, but it goes without saying that if they do, they're going to concede that, that that was wrong as well. And you might remember that back in November, we had Blackburn and Tony Mowbray at Ellen Road. And Mowbray said afterwards, he got into talking about the penalty that was given Bamford went down and he, he kind of said to us he said is it just me or are refereeing standards getting worse this season it feels like it and he was saying you know you're all journalists who've watched the, this league for ages what do you think and I have to say I, I agree and I called Keith Hackett to have a chat with him and it has to be said that Hackett is always critical of referees and always has a pop at PGMOL whenever he gets the chance but he's writing a lot of what he's saying he was saying linesmen don't intervene enough don't help assistants enough some of the positioning with the referees isn't great some of the decisions they make when they are in really good positions as in Saturday at Loftus Road are pretty staggering and and his view was that if you're saying that the standard of referee in in the championship is dropping then 100% agree Do you think it's down to maybe an increase in scrutiny and there's a degree of fear within officials now because you've got a lot more cameras you've got hundreds of them recording footage that gets put out on Twitter highlighting these mistakes and, and maybe there's a more uh, more fear of the analysis that comes with it. I think the PGMOL, uh, PGMOL would argue that they get most, that referees still get a vast uh, number of decisions right. They would probably also dispute Hackett's claim that referees are less fit now. He thinks there's a fitness issue there but you would have to see the data and the stats to be sure and I'm, I'm sure they would argue the toss. You may remember that a couple of years ago they removed the system where you had match day assessors in the stadium for for each specific game and the assessors would be there. They could go down at half time. They would look at what was in front of their eyes and you know they would mark referees that would score the referees they would pick up issues and, and address them afterwards it's all done retrospectively now using video footage rather than being at the game so you don't have I guess the same feel for the atmosphere or, or what's going on and Hackett thinks that that is a, a definite problem and, and he also said that the, the changes to the mentoring teams that used to be in place to look after referees and meet with them regularly and chat to them and kind of be friends for them you know people to they could actually speak to without getting it in the, in the neck was a problem as well I mean I, I just go on on what I see and I, I've tried hard over the years never to make too much of referees because I don't honestly agree with the idea that you don't get promoted because referees were poor I think ultimately you pretty much end up where you, you deserve to be but I do I do think it has dipped this season I think mm. that I think there is an issue I think in some ways there's less scrutiny in our division and I think that's maybe contributing because where the highlights are on Quest and, uh, oh, so you mean like relative to the Premier League, say? So? Yeah, certainly. And and the repercussions, if you think, Leeds have been correct, I think, contacting the the Football League after these games and saying, you know, what the hell? <laughs> and the, the Fulham one is huge because a penalty in the first couple of minutes changes the entire That's game. The point. yeah. But what are the repercussions from that? The referee might not do a couple of games. They're basically just getting a, a letter back that says, yeah, that shouldn't have been a penalty. Sorry. So there's, there's actually nothing, nothing then happening. And if there's... 
if there's no mentoring there anymore, so there's not a referee getting a grip of that that ref and saying, oh, you need to be careful about this, what are you doing? And there's nobody in the, the stadium for them to, to talk to at halftime or or after a game. No sound well. There's this feeling in a championship match that you you just need to get it over and done with. The referee just says, gives a, a decision and they probably think afterwards, oh, I've got that wrong, but then they just spend the rest of the game like, right, let's get through this, get out of here so I can go home and forget it ever happened and then the football league go and say, right, that was wrong, so you'll be you'll be refereeing at Blackpool next week instead of Blackburn and they go, well, occasionally okay, that, well. But I mean, you know, it's not, it's not a, a straightforward system whereby big errors necessarily cost you I mean the, I, I, forget, I think it was James Linnington at, at Millwall and, and he did kind of disappear off the radar um, for a little while after that and somebody was telling me somebody who knows a professional referee was saying that he did get a going over for that Linnington that, that decision because it was, was so obviously wrong you're right about the early goals I mean that one of the things that's annoyed Leeds is that the of the trips to London, and we'll exclude the, the Arsenal game from this, they only really feel like the Charlton game is the one where they, they haven't really shown up and they haven't done enough and, and they haven't been been good enough because at Millwall, they, they go 1-0 down and they lose Berardi to red card. It was early on early again, goal. wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, and Fulham early goal changes the game. QPR is the first goal. And you're certainly right to say that there's no way a goal like that from, from Naki Wells, had it been in the Premier League, would have been some quick highlights on a Saturday evening chatted about a bit on a Sunday and then off I mean it would have dominated the agenda all week had it been at a high profile level and, and what I found quite fascinating with Hackett was that he said actually it matters more in the championship because this goes back to what Moscow was saying earlier so many of the games are so tight and the division is so competitive and so close and, and so many of the games are unpredictable that actually the big decisions are more crucial because you're not getting Leicester 9 Southampton nil. you're not getting Liverpool going everywhere and winning by two or three goals so for the sake of argument Burnley saying we should have had a penalty at 2-0 well okay but the, the likelihood is you would still have lost the game they are kind of match changing decisions and he said and he's not a Leeds fan, but he said quite openly, Leeds have had some awful decisions against them this season. I think that's maybe where it's it's a difference. It's not scrutiny so much as pressure. And I think what I mean by the the referees kind of wanting to to get it over and done with is that they're they're under so much pressure. They just want to be away from it. They're they're not helped through this situation. So they just want ninety minutes to be over so they can go home and forget they were even refereeing a, a championship match, and that doesn't help them make right decisions I just you see them so often it's almost like not when they're making the decisions or the, the decisions look like that sometimes but hands over their eyes fingers in their ears just like la la I don't care I got it wrong just leave me alone players go away I'm just going to get off this pitch and it's always been that that way kind of with the the fact that you can't interview a referee after a game or there's like no that. accountability so, is there there is no accountability and so it just breeds that thing of kind of if there's no accountability and you're under that much pressure you'll, you just want to draw whatever down on your exam paper and go back to bed. It's, it's also, though, about finding the balance between expecting good standards and expecting perfection. And I think one mm. of the one of the ways in which VAR has fallen down in the Premier League is that it's kind of encouraged this culture where, or this attitude that refereeing and decisions should no longer be a problem. Everything should now fall into place nicely and it's never going to be... It's not working um, like that, though, is it? Discussion. No, not quite. And even if VAR is getting the, the big decisions right, it doesn't stop referees from having poor games and from influencing it unintentionally in, in other ways because of the decisions that they're making. And, you know, that, that kind of human error element is always going to be there. But I think it's probably... I think the standards are at a level this season where they, they probably do need addressed. I mean, Michael... I mean, you look at like the evidence of how Spygate was handled. 
even going back to the 15 points, reading our paranoia, whether that was warranted or not, Bamford being cited for diving, stuff like that against Villa. And then you look at the consistency of like, you know, the West Brom dive. I can't remember who did it, but you know, the West Brom game on New Year's Day when that lad mm. took a, a dive. You get the feeling if that had been a Leeds player, somebody had been suspended for that, for deceiving the referee. Do you think, from a fan's point of view, that Leeds get it in the neck more often than other clubs? I mean, Bamford was right to be suspended for that. There was no one anywhere near him. Equally, Bradshaw, there was no one anywhere near him. And that actually counted a lot more. I know, I know laws of the game aren't judged on how important a decision it is, but from our point of view, you do look at that. Bamford getting a play set off against Villa was completely meaningless. Didn't affect the result of the game particularly, didn't affect the result of the league. Whereas at the end of the season, if we are three points shy of automatic promotion, you look at that Millwall decision and think, okay, maybe that has, that has cost us. Likewise, the, the Naki Wells thing. <laughs> I don't know, it does, it does, it's hard when, you, when you're when a Leeds fan and you, you are entrenched in it and in, to a certain degree, the self-pity of it, of why do bad things keep happening to, to lovely old us, which is the way it feels. But I, I don't know. I, if I was a Stoke fan, I'd probably feel that decisions went against Stoke all the time. It's the literal aspect of it as well, though. And it's like the, the, the handball rule. I mean, it has to be said that the second handball from Naki Wells blatantly controlled it perfectly in front of him, which is why it should have been disallowed. I still don't accept that the first one should count against him with his back turned and it basically hitting his, his elbow. I know that's the law, so it should be disallowed, but it seems ludicrous. And the reason that, that there wouldn't have been a ban for um, the West Brom player, and I forget who it was, it Pereira, I can't remember, um, but whoever it was away at Preston, was because there was contact in the way that there was contact when Kelly came out and, and took down Bamford against QPR. But I think there's an argument to say that Bamford went looking for that and made sure that, that he was going to be clipped. But football now has got to the point where if it brushes your arm and you're the attacking team, the goal doesn't count for no apparent reason. And it's not the same in reverse. If you're, if you're a defender and it brushes your arm, it's not automatically a penalty on the basis that that might might help you clear clear the ball so yeah you're left in a position where you look at a challenge and you think well that is pretty much simulation but it's not going to be class as simulation because there is a touch in the middle of it and the ludicrous thing about Bradshaw was like I said earlier you had the, the commission who decided the appeal saying look he basically dived the, the, the way he went down was not consistent with implanting the foot that was was on the ground and when Leeds tried to inquire about this at the FA they were basically told well it's a different department that deals with that, so you need to go and speak to them. And they did genuinely just say, "Do you know you what? need to press it's, three when you ring up if you e- want to exactly report that, diving. and you've got to sit through the um, the elevator music until we, we come in and answer the phone." And they just decided, "Do you know what? What is the point? Yeah. What is the point? They're probably not going to ban him anyway. It'll be a waste of two or three days of this week back and forward. You know, tedious exchange of emails and everything else. So they just left it. And there is a lack of consistency. It's not only leads that suffer from it, but you know, instances like that don't help with with dampening the, the kind of sense of, of paranoia as much as I'm annoyed with the decisions I'm still glad we don't have VAR yeah, absolutely, yeah. I basically hate it I yeah. think it's the worst thing to happen to football in years even the, the few minutes where it crept in at Arsenal and you were waiting to see whether they were going to send off Douglas for pretty much just tickling um, Socrates's face and I mean you know to about five minutes and they still got it wrong them. I mean the, if, if the the one on Berardi. If the, the ref had, if, if the yeah. had sent him off, they wouldn't have overturned that. They would no. have probably said, okay, no, that's, that's a fair decision. But because he didn't, they then watched the footage and said, all right, it's not a red card. So it's, like you say, it's trying to reach perfection, but that shows that's still left open to interpretation and they yeah, don't, they don't yeah. want to overrule yeah. the referee. But equally, if he'd said the other thing, they basically would have said that was right as well. It needs somebody to, to have a big philosophical reminder of why those rules exist in the first place. We have a handball rule to make sure it's not rugby. 
Yeah. And we have an offside rule to make sure you don't have six players standing in the six-yard box for 90 yeah. minutes. And the, that's the reason we have those things. So if a ball is touching somebody's little finger on its way past, it's not a big deal. And if somebody is a like a, a hairbreadth past the defender on a chasing a through ball, you know, the integrity of, of football as a sport is not being called into question. It's just get back to that was the reason why we we have these things and try and build the almost build the rules again from there and rebuild. VAR would be much better if it's not replaying offside decisions for, for inches, if it's not looking at handballs to see if there's contact with a with a fingernail. Use VAR to say, has he caught the thing? Is he a foot offside and the referee's missed it? And then you can do you can make those decisions in common a second. Sen- common sense. It'll I mean, ne- it'll never football, catch on. And football is meant to be fun. It's not. Yes. I, is I, it? I, is it? Do you know what? I've had no fun support. I do, I do kind now. of demand precision if we're talking about heart surgery or something. I, I agree. <laughs> get the millimeters right on stuff like that. Yeah, but but it's really, probably more margin forever. You, you're sticking a pump into a heart, and as long as it's kind of the, as long as the like, tubes are attached. Yeah, exactly. it's like football's version of Terminator Two, isn't it? Like the machines are taking over, and eventually they're going to have to lower Stockley Park into a massive blast furnace, <laughs> and just say, like, "Yeah, we're going to stop this before it gets totally out of hand. getting out of hand." Destroy the chip. Just, so what we're saying is, actually, there's nothing wrong with Leeds United. It's the system that's broken. So I'm glad we've solved that one. Then Leeds United can go into the pit as well. <laughs> If you want to get in touch with us, by the way, you can send us a WhatsApp voice message on our number, which is 07899 It's completely free. You can do it from anywhere around the world. If you're outside the UK, stick a plus four four at the start and you will find us on there. A uh, question from Ethan, who's texted this one through. And he said, in relation to sort of Derby and the PNS and the Rooney question, hello, lads. He said, I read in The Athletic that Leeds aren't really fussed or annoyed about this star player clause that 32 Red inserted into the Derby contract, which has essentially given them the funding to pay for Rooney's wages. was just wondering why they haven't been aggravated by this, because it seems like Preston have. They're not entitled to have the same deal as Derby or Preston in in any respect. These these deals are always negotiated individually. Um, They're also not um, obliged to have the same sponsor as Preston and and Derby. And I do sometimes think that it wouldn't be a bad thing if clubs in English football in general showed a bit more imagination when it came to sponsors and didn't always gravitate towards towards bookmakers. Um, I was chatting to somebody about this on Tuesday, someone who's who's looked into it, and he was saying that, and I don't know whether this applies to Leeds, but some of the clubs who are sponsored by 32 Red, actually the commercial people there have been getting it in the neck because Derby have come up with this idea and other clubs are saying, really, this is something that we could have done as well. We could have could have approached it in, in the same way. Um, so I can understand why it might seem bizarre that your sponsor is funding Rooney to play at, at Derby. But ultimately, if you get into bed with a sponsor who is all over the league and has fingers in, in various pies, then that's kind of the way it goes. On to a question then from Ben, and I guess this one extends into transfers as well. Hi guys, how are we doing? I'm just wondering what your opinion was on how Bielsa and, and Leeds in general use our fringe team player and the, and the small squad that we've got. Brilliant sure is how we have a bench every week and the only substitutes we seem to make are the same ones. And the other side of that is how can we expect fringe players to come in and replace someone who may be injured suddenly? And how do we expect them to do a job in the team to the same level as that player when they're obviously not going to be match fit? Um, because they've had hardly any game time in the main squad. So squad management, does it go back to what we were saying earlier on then about maybe not having quite the faith in the under-23s as the the core first-team players? Yes, um, but probably 
weighted the other way, extreme levels of faith in the, the players that he chooses. I mean, have a look at how many players are either ever present in the Championship this season or virtually ever present, including Phillips and Bamford, who aren't quite, but are pretty much there. And obviously Phillips is now going to have three three games off, which actually, from a, a kind of physical and mental point of view, might not be bad for him, but it just depends on what damage is done to, to results in, in the meantime. He doesn't like to change and he, he doesn't like to rotate and he doesn't like to switch his system and to, to shift things around in the way that a lot of coaches do. And I honestly think if if he could play 11 players from the start of the season to the end of it, then, then he probably would do. And when he first came in, he said to us that he wanted to have pretty much 18 and no more than that senior professionals are kind of kind of already blooded professionals that would be the core of his squad and then he would use four, five, six, twenty threes to supplement the squad as and when it was needed and, and when injuries or, or suspensions caused a problem. And and actually there've been far more in the way of twenty threes um who've been closer to first team training and, and have been heavily involved and you know as the, the debuts that have been given out to them have, have gone well into into double figures. But it's not that there aren't fringe players who get a look in. I mean, you know, you'd get this with a sort of swaps of position between Douglas and, and Alioski. Um, you had Nikete coming into the team from time to time. Guys like Forshaw, if he was here, he would be playing, but you'd still see Dallas getting time off the bench and everything else. So there are fringe players and there are fringe players who are perfectly fit and, and, and you know, good frame of mind and, and sharp and everything else. But there isn't the depth and there isn't the spread of, of squad that, to be frank, a lot of championship managers would want. I mean, I, I imagine, just for the sake of argument, somebody like Nigel Pearson coming in in here, and I know Pearson isn't isn't a popular guy, but he is actually a very good manager. I find it hard to imagine that somebody like that, or in fact the majority of coaches, would come in, look at the squad, and think, "Yeah, well, there's plenty to work with here." I think most of them would say to Leeds, "You don't have enough. You don't have enough players. You don't have enough resources here." But it is how Bielsa operates, and and it is one of the hills that he's prepared to die on. It's his way. It's his philosophy, and he's going to go with it. Got to remember, Bielsa has spent a long time as an international manager. And World Cups, um, Olympics with Argentina, where you do, you know, you, you live or die by the players you, you take with you and you can't just go and, you can't sign anybody, you can't bring anybody up. And he's always been, at the Argentina 2002 thing, you know, he had uh, Batistuta and Crespo and Claudio Canigia, who was having his, his weird little second uh, career in Scotland at the time, brought him back in. But he only played Batistuta. And that's one of the things I think he always... He, he, he has those profuse apologies to Hernan Crespo was that, you know, I had I had one one place at the World Cup, I played one striker and that's that's just the way I am. I I picked one and, and stuck with him. So I think it's built in him from the the early days at Newell's where it was all about team spirit and bringing everybody together and there were a lot of players that he brought through the youth teams he was incredibly loyal to and then going into international management where, yeah, you just, you have this, a finite pool of, of resources and it's you have to counter it against his upbringing then as well of driving all over Argentina in a in a beaten up car to find any player he possibly can who can bring in and you know he, he the reason he spends hours of his life watching VHS tapes of the Finnish second division is in case he can find a player there who he can he can bring in so he's very open to it but he's it's loyalty and just the way he's always worked with a an international squad, a World Cup squad, tournament atmosphere, tournament rules put, puts him in a different mm. mindset. That's interesting. I've not thought about that in that way before. Well, what's quite telling about Crespo and Batistuta is that both of them say now that they should have played together and they could have played together and actually it probably would have been different if they had played together. And 
I, I was going to write about this at length for the Birmingham after the Birmingham game on December the 29th and obviously things got uh, got very tasty down there so it, it wasn't really really relevant but he was quizzed a lot before that World Cup about how what are you going to do are you going to play Batistuta are you going to play Crespo why don't you play them both and, and his answer was and he would say the same at Leeds we've worked on a system for a long, long time. Everybody knows how to play it. This is what I do. I want a front three. I don't want two box players. So in order to, to play them together, we would have to change everything. And he would throw in little caveats like, so, you know, I'll need to give this some some thought. You know, it's, it's something I could consider, which was code for, I'm absolutely not doing this. And it's pointless <laughs> you asking me because it's just not, you know, it's just not going to happen. But I did find it interesting that, that both players said retrospectively, to be honest, he should have done it. He should yeah. have played us both in the same team. And and if you look at the way they performed in that tournament, it's hard to argue that Bielsa was right. I mean, it, it didn't go didn't go well for them. But, but again, before the is... tournament, it was hard to argue with Ron because they'd just come through the the qualifying and they'd absolutely scored more goals than anybody had ever scored past the that, rest of South America. That was exactly his argument. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's he he does tend to get absolutely slaughtered with hindsight and. Um, but he also does tend to wander into those those traps that yeah. that make that possible. It is a th- one of the strange things that we look at the Leeds team now and you say, if we only had a really world-class striker in that team, we'd win every game 5-0. But he had a world-class striker in that Argentina team and they couldn't beat a very poor England team. They couldn't beat Sweden. They I mean, just... the Sweden game is hilarious. It's like watching Leeds now when he does end up, Crespo comes on. Um, I think Kaniji gets sent off from the bench so that's which sounds very Leeds-ish when you think of like Hernandez going off injured at Fulham it's that thing of like oh well maybe we can maybe I can bring Kanija on and spin that nope he's been sent off for, for descent but it is it's chance after chance whipping across the box and players Ortega and Batistuta and uh, and Crespo that you would think could finish any of these just bamfording them into whatever part of the stadium that Bamfording can, a, a new verb a, a, yeah. they possibly can and they end just up Just like that Oxford Dictionary alert yourselves <laughs> for the end of this year let's and they look, end up out of it Let's move the discussion on then towards transfers then because his his mindset is quite clearly influential over over the transfer policy and the corner that Leeds United seem to have painted themselves into a little yeah. bit with transfers this this window So where are we then? Pervader as we speak I mean it's quarter past 11 at this, this moment of recording Yeah so he'll be having his medical it was, it was set for earlier this morning I would imagine all being well it'll be announced this afternoon permanent deal that one and I would have thought three and a half year contract something like that I don't know the specifics of the contract but it'll be fairly lengthy given that he's he's 19 they'll be happy with that one they've been watching him for about a year and they've had tabs on him and like I say there are plenty of people particularly the, the guys who worked with him at Brentford who have really really good good things to say about him and there were some other options he had interest from Hoffenheim and, and also Torino and actually I think Brentford were having a, a little look um, towards the end as well so it's been quite slow and it's been a bit torturous at, at points but it, it is going to happen it doesn't change the fact that it is all about this centre forward that they're they're trying to get. And the Shea Adams one is odd because on the one hand, you've got Southampton trying to say publicly that it's not happening, it's never going to happen. They're totally bemused about why it's even why why it's even been spoken about. On the other hand, you've got Leeds who are still sticking in for this. And you know, the the, the story that was coming out yesterday was that the, the latest offer had been 
loan fee with twenty million pound obligation if if they go up and Southampton had, had said no to that. But it is the case that Southampton or certain people at Southampton have been encouraging this. And one of the reasons we know that is that a colleague of mine spoke to somebody who'd been doing a bit of work on behalf of Sheffield Wednesday and had, had exactly the same info that we did from from the Leeds end about what it was that Southampton were looking for. But of course Hassan Hull doesn't want him to go, so and and then they really don't look like they're gonna stitch him up um, at this stage unless something is gonna happen next week. And they're in a position now where most of the players that they'd like to do on loan with an obligation are proving difficult, stroke impossible to get out. So they like Andre Gray at Watford, but it it does seem as if Pearson again is, is kind of minded to keep hold of him. They would take Bowen from Hull, but I'm still to to understand how on earth Hull would plan to to sell to their fans the fact that they were sending Bowen here in the hope that Leeds get promoted and then pay a sizable fee in the summer. I mean, it's just like, it, it's just commercial suicide. I mean, the club have been quoted ridiculous fees for Bowen, aren't they? Huge fees, yeah. So, you know, £20 million plus. But the problem there is that if they were buying these strikers outright, Adams, Gray, Bowen, they would pay less money because the cash goes into the clubs immediately and the managers who are there can spend it because it's on the never-never in the sense that it's a loan fee now, so much smaller loan fee and money coming in the summer. The finance isn't actually of any use to the clubs who are selling, so they want more money. They want a premium on top of it to account for the fact that really this is this deal is in Leeds' favour. It's Leeds who are going to benefit. So is that why we're looking at maybe term. 20 million for Adams rather than 15? So? Absolutely. I think if they if they were wanting to sign Adams outright at the moment, I don't think you would be talking 20 million pounds, but it does cost more because they are essentially doing you a favour in, in a lot of ways. And also if the obligation is only in the event of, of promotion, and that's not to say it would be in every case, but it, it, it might be in some, then equally you've potentially got a player coming back to you who's gone away on loan it hasn't happened. You haven't really made any money out of them. You don't want them any more in six months' time than you did in January when you let them go. And, and it doesn't doesn't really work for you. So it has to be said that they're in for deals where they are really, as much as the money being talked about is, is sizable and is, you know, big sums of cash, they are looking for favours and they are kind of looking for clubs to say, yeah, do you know what? Take Adams for the next six months, see how it goes. Does it feel a bit to you like the football world is kind of adjusting to the state of play now with profit and sustainability, that's becoming yeah. more of a reality for championship clubs because we're seeing these sanctions now starting to be put in place and maybe the Premier League with these fringe players is now becoming aware of that there's no cash in the championship anymore. Yeah, a PNS is what Leeds talk about all the time and, and it's a it's a slightly strange situation because they adhere to PNS as tightly as they can and, and they're saying that there is wriggle room to do one of these deals. You know, they've got enough space to do a chunky loan fee for somebody like Adams, like Andre Gray, but they certainly don't have the cash to to buy them outright, which is why Costa wasn't bought outright at the end of the season because that would have blown the, the PNS limit. They could have done Harrison last summer, but they've taken the option for eight million instead again because they would rather push it on into the next accounting year to make sure that they don't they don't breach and they don't potentially get a points deduction or a transfer embargo or or whatever else else comes with it. But at the same time, they, they object to the rules leads. They, they they abide by them, but they want to see them changed because they think there are too many loopholes. And they're right, to be honest. There are too many loopholes, and they don't think that they're, they're particularly fit for purpose. They don't think that they're helping in a environment where players who you're trying to get from the Premier League are on such extortionate wages that you almost have to push the boat out to do anything with them. Otherwise, they're just completely out of your your price range. And someone was talking to me about a club in the Championship who are at the moment are, are limiting wages to 10 grand a week which is not competitive at this level at all but maybe it's the way that everybody's going to have to go at this level rather than trying to persist with the idea that you can 
creep and creep and creep, spend a little bit more, um, continually push up the average average wage, average salary. I mean, Leeds have gone from a wage bill of you know around about twenty million pounds when Chilino was in charge to a wage bill of cl- much closer to forty now, which is pretty much their entire revenue, you know, their, their annual annual income. So the idea that there's no money being spent isn't correct, and the idea that clubs in the Championship are on mass spending ten million pounds, twelve million pounds, fifty million pounds on players isn't correct either but it doesn't change the fact that they need a striker they've lost Niketia and they've got to get something done so the PNS argument is a fair one and, and it does apply to Leeds but it won't wash with a lot of people if a, for- a decent forward doesn't come through the door Feels like the latest round of Premiership TV money as well has changed this from a few years ago where someone like Southampton can now afford to say they've signed Adams and he's basically been a flop there isn't he's yeah. not, not, not scored a goal for him and we're giving them an opportunity to offload him potentially for a profit and they're saying actually we'll see how it goes because they can afford to to take that risk on, on a £15 million player I think, I think there are people at Southampton certainly on the board who would like to take the money and would like to cash in now uh, or at least you know loan with a view to cashing in in the summer I think the difference for Hassan Hotel is that he is probably only really focused on these six months um, and making sure that they stay up and, and keeping his job I think Adams can probably see, see as well that come the summer if Southampton get into the market again and start to recruit in his position as much as Hassan Hotel is telling him now that he's a player he needs is that going to be the same message in the summer Possibly not. Probably not. Uh, so he he would be he would be very keen on on coming. But it ha- there is there is huge disparity. I mean, if you if you're in for Dwight Gale, you're dealing with a wage of about sixty thousand pounds a week. Somebody was telling me that Andre Gray's at Watford is even higher than that. Um, I don't know how Championship clubs, barring owners picking up the slack, are supposed to finance that. And because of PNS, there is only so far an owner can go anyway before they start to breach it. So you either blow the rules and cross your fingers that you're going to get promoted or you kind of abide by it or you find big loopholes mm. like stadium sales that let you stay inside the, the boundaries. The other, the other side of that is that there's surely only so long that Premier League club owners are going to be happy stockpiling forwards and players that they then can't move on because nobody in the Championship can afford to take them off their hands. If Southampton do get a new manager in the summer and the, he wants to sign two new strikers... Who are they going to sell Shea Adams to at 15, 20 million when nobody in the in the championship, if Leeds are among the, the biggest spenders on wage, but if, if other clubs are going for 10 grand a week maximum, there is nowhere for those players to go. And I think there will, there's a, there is a reckoning yeah, coming the, on the, the horizon, the, the mar- isn't it? The market there? has to adjust, doesn't it? It's yeah. funny it to think, though, isn't it? The, 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 start the... again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it does. Yeah. We've already decided referees all need to get in the sea, and then it's uh, the transfer system also just needs to... Everything, a lot of this does feel like it's crept up for a long time, and we're getting to that point now where the, the implications are becoming clear to everybody, and it'll be clear in the Premier League, clear in the Championship, and they'll probably just ruin it even more. It, it makes you wonder if the thing that is going to right the transfer system and the disparity in the market isn't the idea that the bubble will bust in the Premier League which is what everybody's spoken about for ages but the bubble just seems to grow and get bigger and bigger and and almost get stronger but whether it'll be the fact that as Moscow said that championship clubs get to the point where they just cannot finance the fringe players in the Premier League and they cannot afford to pay for guys who can't get a game at that level and are not wanted by their clubs and ultimately might be left with nowhere to go unless they start to reconsider how much they're they're asking for I mean I think you'll always get clubs in the championship who will 
kind of go with the, the general costs and we'll try and push the boat out and, and take risks. But more and more seem to be rowing back. And and one of the things that's made a difference to that is the, the points deductions that are now getting spoken about for breaches of PNS, which are actually going to start relegating clubs at this rate. You know, if you if you're in if you're on the on the spot for a twenty one point deduction and you're Derby, you're in deep, deep trouble. You have to look as well on a I'm taking this into a real existential place, but if what Derby were doing, we we touched on it before, what they're doing with, with Wayne Rooney doesn't feel like it's good for anybody. What they're doing in, in general, that star player clause, that's not what you're supposed to have in the, the championship. One of the, the top leagues in a in the country is having this sort of sub-Harlem Globetrotters stunts going on. They kind of did it with Ashley Cole last season and doing it with Wayne Rooney this, where it's, it's not even about trying to get promoted to the Premier League. It's just about some razzmatazz will have some cheerleaders and have Wayne Rooney with 32 on his back. If you wanted to be cynical, you would say it was about trying to attract people who might want to buy the club by doing things that give Derby a bit more of a a bit more of a profile. And if you think about uh, the attitudes of clubs paying for players that they then can't get rid of, I feel like you get the, the question of, of B teams coming up again and saying, well, if nobody in the football league can afford to to buy these players, but they're of a standard to play in the championship, why can't we just have our reserve team? We'll go into the uh, the football league and, and start from there if we're paying for them anyway. We're starting so the, the whole thing starts to just blow it up. Yeah, blow it all up. Millwall next week then, and uh, let's put your legendary powers of prediction to the test, Phil. Um, what's the the one to watch? The issue, the person that we should be paying attention to in the Millwall game. Well, the thing I'm most interested in by a mile is who replaces Phillips. I mean, he, regardless of how it had gone at QPR, you're not going to see six, seven changes. It's going to be the same team in, in roughly the same structure, although Phillips being absent might mean a shift to you know three at the back or, or whatever else. But that that has got to be the the key decision. And I think at this stage, it feels unlikely that there's going to be a striker in in time for that match. I mean, we're, we're almost up to Thursday lunchtime at the moment. There has been a, a lot of vindication from Leeds in the last couple of days that it might well be that, that they go international for this signing and that they look to Europe as opposed to domestically. And again, if that's the case, then, then that'll take longer to do. So I would love to say that one to watch would be Shea Adams or another who, who comes through the door. But really what, what I'm fascinated to see is how... Bielsa replaces an irreplaceable player that he has no replacement for. I'm looking forward to Ian Perveda's debut goal, solo dribble from the halfway line. Well, you never know, do you? You never know. Uh, We'll catch up with Phil's writing at The Athletic, the home of 20 UK football podcasts, including this one. To subscribe to The Athletic, head to theathletic.com forward slash leads pod for a 40% discount. We'll speak to you next week.